All right, good morning, Ville Church. You are the few, the proud, the true believers, the, the ones who have endured through, through snow. Um, open up your Bibles with me um, to the book of Numbers, if you would, chapter 14. Um, what I want to do is I want to tell you three stories, one from Scripture and two in real life. Uh, Numbers chapter 14, we're going to start in verses, verse 1, and we'll go through verse 12. Uh, the context for this is you turn as the wilderness Israelites... Um, they have just heard that the promised land which God had offered to them was filled with fierce, large, strong warriors, and here's their response. Verse one, then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Verse five, then Moses and Aaron They fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, they tore their clothes. And they said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, the land which we passed through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, He will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord. And do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. And their protection is removed from them. And the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Then all the congregation, (laughs) here's how they respond. They said to stone them with stones. The Lord intervenes, but the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of the meeting to all the people of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me? In spite of, in spite of all the signs that I have done among them, I will strike them with pestilence and disinherit them. And I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. Uh, The following two stories I'm going to tell you now are both true, and the names and industries have been completely changed so that you would have no clue who we're talking about. I want to tell you the story of Ralph and Sarah. Ralph has two beautiful kids, a loving, faithful, and beautiful wife, Ralph has a great job, and he is living the dream. But Ralph has been discontent with his bride for some time. At first, she was a gift from God. Eventually, she became someone he was just used to. And he'll be the first to admit that he hadn't exactly fanned the flame of their love over the past few years. Sarah is a mother of three. Her husband left her for another woman a few years ago, and she knows personally the pain of adultery. Sarah works with Ralph, and Sarah sees Ralph noticing her. She hasn't felt like that in a very long time. It was an otherwise normal Friday, but today she felt empowered to test the waters to see if Ralph would respond, 
and he did. And their relationship secretly escalated over the following weeks. Of course, as fate would have it in this digital world, they were both caught and there was no denying it. I'm gonna tell you about Pamela. Pamela had a great job. She made great money. She was moving up in the world. Management was noticing her. Six figures could turn into seven over time if she just played things right. Their line of work wasn't always ethical per se, but nobody really got hurt except for the rich who lost pennies and decimal points, no big deal. One day, the opportunity presented itself. No one would know. To the best of her knowledge, untraceable. If perchance discovered a glitch, or maybe even a hacker. Quote, I'm trusted, end quote, she said to herself. $13,750 out of tens of millions. Here's what she didn't know. She didn't know the opportunity was actually a test for man management. Here's my question. Why do we put great things at risk for that which is temporary? Now, now hold off your judgment for a moment, right? Because you're thinking how foolish could they be? I wanna ask you another question. I want you to go back and I want you to think of the greatest sin regret in your life. For some of you, that is coming right to the forefront of your brain. I want you to think about this. What were you willing to sacrifice in that moment, in that season, for that which is fleeting? Isn't it, isn't it amazing? What we are willing to give up these beautiful, wonderful gifts for something so small. So I wanna talk about two things. First, I wanna talk about how real people fall, how you and I fall. How, how do people even get to this place? And there's actually a very simple trajectory that people take. Uh, we are not that complex as human beings. Almost every person who gets to the place of doing dumb things, they don't just wake up one day and say, I'm gonna do something dumb, right? Dumb things are the culmination of a series of really bad decisions. And it starts off very innocuously. And some of you, you're gonna look at this and you haven't quite done the dumb thing yet, right? Some of you, you're looking at the future, you know the dumb thing is inevitable, right? And, and maybe you're gonna find yourself on this list and we're gonna talk about what really is gonna be the antidote. So here's the first, here's the first thing that happens. People forget. Um, we find ourselves just going through the grind of life and you forget uh, all of the things that God has done for you. Maybe you forget how amazing your life really is. I mean, sure, some things are difficult right now, but maybe, maybe you forget who you wanted to be. Maybe you forgot the vision you had for your life, or maybe just over time and through busyness, you forgot the vision that God had for your life, the things that you know God wanted you to be. And this is innocuous, it's, it's, it just happens. Like most people don't wake up and say, I'm gonna forget, otherwise you would remember. Uh, what happens in forgetting is life just gets busy and we forget what is most valuable and important to us. And then here's what happens, we look and we say something like, the grass is greener over there. And it might just be small, right? But there's this idea of something other than what we have, something other than what God has for us right here and right now. And it's just a simple thing. The grass is greener. The grass is greener. And then, and then the looking ends up into justification or rationalizing. And you know this, right? I mean, God is holding out on me. Do you know how many times I've heard the following phrase? I deserve this. Oh, that, if that comes out of your mouth, there's a dangerous moment. There's a rationalization, a justification that is very, 
very dangerous. But what most people don't realize is this is actually what they're saying. When they say, I deserve this, what they're saying is God is holding out on me. And that is a dangerous place to get. Now, if you just stop there, this is where a lot of people live in bitterness and grumbling and discontent. They're frustrated with God. They're frustrated with their spouse. They're frustrated with their job, frustrated with their kids. And I would love to say that most people stay here. Now, this is the place where people can linger the longest, right? Because to get past this stage requires an act of your will that is going to require probably somewhat of a hard and cold heart. And this is the, this is the next step where you actually taste, where you touch, where you act, where you actually take this thing of discontent and you go pursue the thing that you believe is gonna make everything better. You know this, right? You see this. I mean, this is really just human behavior, human decision-making 101. And you watch this start to happen. Now, once you actually take the bite, here's what you say beforehand, I can stop this, but once you start it, sin has this insidious way of getting deep down inside of you and holding on to you very tightly. And if this is something that you know is wrong, guess what we don't like to be as human beings? Caught, right? And so this is where sin, subtle deception, which grows, I mean, you get this. The moment it happens, all of a sudden now there is the temptation to weave an entire web of lies and deceit. Though, albeit small, the longer you in it, the more it grows. Taste. Inevitably, if you are a follower of God, Here's what God will do for you because the word says that he disciplines those he loves. He will expose you. This to me is one of the hardest places because as we take the bite, as we take the step forward, we believe that God isn't paying attention, that God won't care or that God will not humiliate us. And if I've learned one thing about sin is that God will humiliate me if it creates holiness in me. That my pride, which I seek to protect, my reputation, saving face, all of that other stuff that I want to protect, God isn't concerned about my face and my pride. He wants to kill it. And God would rather humble me than let me move forward tasting and experiencing something that is utterly destroying me and taking life. This is one of the scariest parts. And what happens when people get exposed, it's interesting because immediately they go to desperation. And then if they have a little bit of time in prayer, they find an incredible sigh of relief. Because once you live in the light and your dark secrets are exposed, now inevitably there's fallout. But there's an overwhelming peace that comes with this. And most people don't understand that we do serve a God who will not hesitate to expose. And then we get to the last one, which is the fallout. Get out. You're fired. We're done. I call this the funnel of fallout because you, you, you start to ask, how do people get to this place? Uh, and I'll, I'll tell you that it begins at the very top. It begins with the forgetting. Uh, this whole funnel, this whole experience, this whole domino effect, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, it's completely unnecessary. And here's what I want to do, okay? It's been a little bit negative. Let's just get really positive, okay? I want to share with you the antidote to all this. I hope at this point you have some kind of felt need in you and you're like, Michael, this has been my life um, or this probably will be my future. How do I prevent this from happening? Like, how do we make sure that this, this forgetting at the very top doesn't begin this long list of things that creates heart and fall out for my family and for my friends. And here's the, the antidote. It's so beautiful. It's so simple. And, and my desire for you is that you're going to leave here and you are going to figure out in your life how to inject this thing into every part of your life, starting with God. And then you're going to work out and you're going to do this with other people in your life. And here's what you're going to find. That if you do this thing, not only will your relationship with God actually start to thrive even more quickly, but people are going to like you 
a whole lot more, which we all know that you all want to be desperately liked by other people, right? <laughs> You're not going to admit that, but it's true, okay? Uh, here's the antidote to all of the crazy, and it's so simple. It is gratitude. Gratitude. Gratitude is like olive oil. So um, olive oil, it's wonderful. If you don't like olive oil, I hate olives, but I love olive oil. Go figure that one out. Um, not too long ago, I was staining something, and I got stain, um, you know, wood, staining wood, all over my hands, like to the point where you get to a point where you're like, I don't even care if it's on me anymore. I took the gloves off because the gloves have ripped, and my whole hand is coated dark brown. And uh, I thought, no big deal. I've got some paint thinner. It'll be fine. And then I go to look for the paint thinner, and I have no paint thinner. And then I think to myself, okay, it's freezing cold. It's actually 11 o'clock at night. Home Depot's closed. My wife calls our neighbor, and she says, sorry, we're out of paint thinner. And I'm like, all right, I, got, I can't do anything because both of my hands are dark, dark brown with paint thinner. So I think I'm a genius. I'm going to go into the shower, and I'm going to just scrub it off with soap, and I'm going to scrub, and I'm going to scrub, and I'm going to scrub. And guess what happens? Nothing. I'm, it's driving me insane. And so I, I, I told my wife, I said, I, I got to get this off of me. And now it's all over the floor. It's starting to stain the bathtub, right? And I'm like, what have I done? It's on the walls. And, but of course, it's on my hand at the same time. So she goes on uh, Google uh, and she looks up, uh, how do you get a stain off your hands? And uh, lo and behold, it's, how do you get stain off with olive oil? And she said, take this olive oil. But by the way, have you ever had olive oil in your hands? Like, it doesn't come off easily, does it, right? And uh, so she's like, take the olive oil. She brings me this big bucket of olive oil. And uh, she's like, just put your hands in there and it'll be fine. I'm like, how does oil get off oil? Like, that doesn't make any sense to me. Like, one's greasy, so you get off grease with oil. Like, it doesn't make any logical sense to me. So I get in, I'm in the shower and she brings this in and I put it in there. And it was amazing because the, uh, the stain just started coming off my body. And it was completely counterintuitive. And I was thinking, how is this even possible? How does oil get off oil, right? Doesn't even make any logical sense. And I was sitting here and I'm like, wow, this is just a great illustration because sometimes it's the simplest things that can prevent or get all of this yuck off of ourselves. And it's amazing because most people don't think about gratitude. But in fact, I mean, one pastor, he said it this way, one of the chief and primary marks of a true believer in Jesus Christ is gratitude in every part of their life. I heard that and I was like, what? And I started reading through scripture and I'm like, the amount of times it says, be thankful always is like unbelievable to God and to other people. And then what I started finding is that gratitude is this incredibly powerful antidote. When you are regularly grateful, you don't forget how good you actually have it despite how frustrating many parts of our life actually are. Gratitude is this powerful gift from God and it's like he looks at all of us and says, look, I know your life is going to be really hard. I know that tragedy is going to strike. I understand. I know the future. I know pain. I know people will hurt you. I know loved ones will die, right? But here's my command to you. Be thankful always. In every circumstance, give thanks. And then you're like, okay, in every circumstance, God, you don't understand what I've gone through. Really? You don't understand? What? I don't understand, God, what you've gone through? And yet, even in light of knowing more pain than anyone in this room could plausibly imagine, he still enters into our reality, and he basically says this, be grateful always. And here's what happens. When we do this, 
our lives are transformed. So Genesis chapter two, now we're gonna get into this text. In Genesis chapter two, verse seven to 25, we're gonna have two more weeks in this text. Next week, um, Pastor Craig and I, we're gonna be talking about um, the sanctity of gender and sexuality and marriage. We're gonna look at God's design for that. This week, we're gonna do something a little bit different. I wanna look through this text and I wanna ask you to look at this text through the lens of God's profoundly generous heart. Now here's my challenge for you guys. Many of you are going to go back to your community groups and uh, in this text I want you to just write down. Pastor Craig and I came up with 12 um, beautiful gifts, generous gifts that God has given to bless us, to have us thrive, for us to thank him for. Um, Here's what I want you to do. There are many, many more than 12 just in this text. So maybe in your notes here, in your community group, um, find how many blessings and gifts that God gives to Adam, to Eve, and humanity just in this text alone. And whoever gets the most amount of blessings, you get an incredible prize to me. It's called brownie points. I've, div- I've, I've given these out a lot. Uh, my brownie points are very, very valuable. So if you want those, uh, have your community group leaders like text me or Pastor Tim um, all of the ways that you see God is blessing Adam, Eve, and humanity in this text. I think Ville Church, sometimes um, we look at all of our life and all of the bad decisions and all of the things that we don't have and all the things we wish could be there. And sometimes we just forget to step back that we in Jesus Christ are more profoundly blessed than we could ever plausibly imagine. And what God is going to do for Adam and Eve and humanity, it is the tip of the iceberg. And what I want to do is I want to encourage you, um, find a way to, with prayer and supplication, give thanks in everything always, and let this sermon just be a foundation for that. Point number one in your notes, God is not holding out on you. God is not holding out on you. The first gift that God gives to Adam and to all of humanity is himself. I want you to read this one. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. So here we have the Lord's name, which is the Lord God. Prior to this, the only name of God was Elohim, which is translated big G, little O, little D, God. Uh, Elohim is what's called the majestic plural. Um, It is a name that communicates majesty, authority, and power. So in the first creation account, um, God is creating the heavens and the earth, and God is exercising his Elohim, his majesty, his power, right? What's interesting is the second um, description of creation, we talked last week how it zooms in on day six, uh, 11 times he calls himself Yahweh Elohim. Yahweh is the personal intimate, relational name of God. And this is where God is not just telling us the big picture of what's going on, he's zooming in, and this is where God gets really, really personal with Adam and with Eve. What's interesting here, I want you to also notice, is that where does God breathe life into him? Like in our brains, don't you automatically go to CPR where God puts his mouth over Adam's mouth? It's not what it says. Actually, this is a little different. God puts his mouth over his nostrils And he imparts to Adam the very life of God. So then when Adam opens his eyes for the very first time, what does he see? He sees his creator. I mean, maybe he sees his creator's mouth over his nose, if you will. That'd be a weird sight. Oh, what are you doing? (laughs) Who are you? Right? But here's what Adam sees. Now, here's what's interesting. Each and every childbirth 
is to a degree a reenactment of this moment where you have a son or a daughter born and the first person they see ideally would not be a doctor who swifts them off to NICU but is their mom and their dad. Where the child is put into the arms of their mother and there is an immediate hormonal, emotional, biological connection that happens in this place. That what you see first, who you first attach to, has lifelong implications in a powerful way. My, my wife and I are foster care approved. We went through foster care training. And uh, in foster care, you learn about all these really hard realities that kids all over America are going through. And they break your heart. And uh, one of the scenarios that came up regularly was simply this. What, what do you, is it better for a kid to be with their biological parents or their birth parents or the parents they grew up with? Or is it better for them to be maybe with a healthier foster, foster family? And here's what they always said. Almost always, except in cases of abuse, even if it's, there's extreme poverty, it's better for a child to be with their biological parents. It's better for a child to be with the parents who raised them from birth, those parents that they made those initial connections with. Now, we're not speaking to adoption. We're speaking about these other circumstances where uh, a child is born with a biological mom or biological dad. And it was a very interesting reality because there's something even in the human psyche that is drawn to this. And what they even said is they find that even in kids who have these incredible opportunities that they'll even choose their biological parents. Why? Not because they're necessarily always making the best decision because something inside of us is bound to be deeply, emotionally, spiritually, hormonally, relationally connected to this experience. And Adam wakes up and, and here's what I imagine. Imagine at the end of all of these um, gifts, I imagine if God could just stop, right? He, he, he looks at Adam and he says something very personal to him. Now, you guys do know like the best gifts in life are, are given on purpose with intention, right? You know, you get a gift from somebody and they're just like, yeah, 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 do whatever you want. Or you get a gift from somebody and here's what they say to you. I was really thinking about you and I gave you this because I thought you would love this. Right? You know those gifts? Where people put time and energy and thought into it and then they explain it. Sometimes they even give it with a blessing. Um, like here's one. Hey, I know you and your wife have been busy lately. This is one uh, recently somebody gave to my wife and I. We, wanted, we wanna give you just a gift certificate. Go out to dinner. We'll watch your kids. We just wanna bless you and we wanna encourage you. May you spend more time together. With the gift came an explanation. It was personal. It was thought out. And then there was even just this blessing to us personally. May you, may you guys just be blessed. I was like, that's, that's, that's amazing. That was meaningful. That, that went deep and filled our souls with gratitude. I imagine with every one of these gifts, I, I put together a scenario in my brain where the Lord is gonna just take Adam or he's gonna take Eve aside. He's gonna put his hand on their shoulder and he's gonna say something. And here's what I think Adam might say this, or God might say this to Adam. Adam opens his eyes, sees his creator, is emotionally, biologically, hormonally just connected Right? He sees for the first time the greatest pursuit of his life. And God says, Adam, you are mine. I love you. And I imagine this deep, overwhelming experience of satisfaction just overwhelmed him. You know that, that experience that every kid wants to hear from their dad? I'm proud of you. I love you. You are so important to me. That, that those words that are so elusive to so many in you here, the reason you want those from your dad is because God wired you for that. And God sometimes enters into our life and says, he may not have done that for you, but I wanna look at you if you're in Christ. You are mine. I love you. I will protect you. And in this initial moment, God gives Adam one of the greatest longings of his heart, which is himself and his fatherly affection and love. Number two, an eternal soul. Verse seven says, 
Then the Lord God, he formed, he fashioned the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his life the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Again, notice how the Lord breathes. Uh, But this word for living creature is nefesh. It's this alive thing. Now, here's, here's the deal. Um, living creatures are any animal, if you will, in Scripture. And then Genesis 1, it talks about living creatures in the ground, these nefeshes, if you will. But there's something that really sets apart Adam from all the rest of creation. And what sets him apart is this. He has the very life breath of God. Somebody might call this the soul. Nefesh has a different, uh, multiple different ways of being applied and interpreted. And, and here's what you find, that there's something unique about God. The very life force of God is in humanity. And he has this ability to live forever. I imagine that God puts his hand on Adam's shoulder and he says, Adam, you are eternal at this point. Not eternally preexistent, but you will live forever. From this point forward, every Everything you do matters. Everything you do matters. Now we're gonna start flying through this. Number three, a beautiful home. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden. Literally, Eden is delight. This is the garden of delight. And uh, God gives this place Eden, which was this d- delightful land. And then God plants a special garden in the east of it. And he takes Adam and he plops him down. He gives him this incredible home. Adam had no say in where he got to live. But I guarantee you, if you could sit down with Adam and say, how beautiful was Eden? He would step back and say, let me just tell you of the splendor and of the glory. You have never seen anything like the garden that God gave to me and my family. Adam, what is the biggest regret in your life when you threw it? all away for a bite of fruit. Imagine God would put his arm on Adam and say, Adam, may you find delight and pleasure in the home that I have prepared for you. A life-giving purpose and work. Verse 15, the Lord God, he took the man and he put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. One of the greatest blessings and privileges that God gives to humanity is the privilege of work. And work gives us purpose to be productive and to bless those around us, which is why it is so important for moms and dads to raise kids who know how to work. Because kids who don't know how to work turn into adults who don't know how to work. It doesn't mean you gotta go get a a boss or a job at age 11, but it does mean that they should know authority and it does mean that they should know how to interact with people. I I wanna read to you the book of uh, 2 Thessalonians. This is a a passage of of scripture that I personally just love. And and, uh, 2 Thessalonians 3, chapter 10, you can look at it in your notes. It says this, even when we were with you, we would give you this command, Paul says to this church, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Isn't that powerful? Like, how does Paul feel about work? You don't work, you don't eat. Like, that's, that's insane. And then for our culture, at least. And then he says, for we hear that some among you walk in idleness. You get up and you play video games all day long and you have no purpose. Not busy at work, but busy bodies, running around doing your own thing, only serving yourself. Now, such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Here's what I imagine. I imagine God's encouragement to Adam puts his hand on his shoulder and he says, I designed you to be productive and to bless the world. Go. May you do much 
good. May you get to the end of your day and look back and see what you have been able to do for your family and for humanity. Keeps on. Number five, real choices. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Bound up in every gift is a decision. Here's the trick with God's gifts. You gotta get this. God's gifts aren't like a Christmas present. And a Christmas present, you can decide to not use it or to use it and there are no consequences except for maybe your parents wasted some money. Uh, God's gifts are actually structured a little bit differently. If you don't use it, it is to your detriment. And if you use it wrongly, it is to your harm. Do you see that? Like when we get the idea that God is giving us options, we really miss the whole point of what a divine gift is. A divine gift is something that we walk into and live in and we cannot not use it because to not use it is to actually hold back and to actually use it wrongly is to cause much harm. Here's what I imagine he says to Adam. Adam puts his hand on his shoulder and says, you are not my slave. You are my son. You are free. Now trust me. Next, number six, God gives Adam gracious law. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. And obviously he put the, uh, the experience of hunger inside of him. So what is Adam gonna do? He's going to go eat something. And here's what he says. Um, but you shall not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then he gives him a warning, right? How good is God to tell him exactly what is gonna happen if he walks into this? I mean, do you not see that in every law there is a grace, there is a gift. Imagine he looks at him and says, Adam, if you follow me, I will give you life. If you follow me, you will thrive as a human being. Number seven, helpful companionship. It says this. I'm sorry, meaningful work. Uh, go to action number eight. I, uh, there's only 12, but I have 13 in here, so I'll skip number eight. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now, next week, we're gonna get more in depth into this, but I love how the Lord um, takes from the animal creation and puts him in front of Adam, and then he realizes that there's nothing in the creation that's gonna satisfy the deepest parts of Adam's heart, and he forms and fashions and shapes a woman for him uniquely as this beautiful gift. And here's what's interesting. Some of you, you're like, look, I'm not married, I'm single. And God, in his grace, has given us families and the church to be our companions and our helpers. And here, here's the, the amazingly difficult proclamation. You're not made to do this alone. You're not made to do this alone. You're not made to do this alone. You need people. You need help. You need help. You're not made to do this alone. And the introverts, you're like, oh, I just got it. I'll do this alone, right? The spiritually rebellious, oh, I'll do this alone. The extroverts, right? That's a different story altogether, right? We're, we're jacked up in other ways. Uh, but, but here's the deal. You're not made to do this alone and God knows this. And so God gives us more than we could ever need to thrive. The next one is a, a, a satisfying marriage. Again, if you're not single, this is one of these that doesn't directly apply to you, but everything God gives humanity in this temporal institution called marriage, he gives to everybody eternally in Jesus Christ. So even if you don't get the temporal privileges of marriage and sexuality, much more are coming for you than you could ever possibly imagine. Matthew Henry, um, he said this about uh, God taking uh, the woman from the rib. I just thought this was beautiful. I read this in, uh, in, in many of the weddings that I do when we talk about Genesis, and here's what he said. Eve was not taken out of Adam's head to top him, neither out of his feet to be trampled on by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected by him and near his heart to be 
loved by him. Here's what I imagine. I imagine God puts his arm on Adam and he says this, Adam, I made her just for you. Now love her well. And he blesses her and he blesses him and he gives him everything he needs to love her. The next one. God glorifying gender. Again, next week we'll look more into this, but here's what he says. Then the man, Adam in Hebrew, said, this at last is bone of my bones. This is the first poem in all of scripture. The first words that come out of Adam's mouth are poetry. And some have said that men should learn the language of poetry because of this. Well, some of you should never be poets. So this at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called And in the very word for woman, it means soft. And he looks at her and the way God has designed her and that God has designed this tender woman. And then he says, and then it says this, because she was taken out of Ish, man. This is a different word for man now. And this means strong, hairy. Just kidding about the hairy part. Just strong. Makes a lot of us feel better in here. And into our own biology, God injects specific and unique opportunities to reflect his nature and character. And this is something that God assigns to us at birth and gives us the privilege. I imagine Adam, or God puts his arm on Adam's shoulder and says this, Adam, you and Eve reflect my nature and my character uniquely, individually, and beautifully. More on that next week. Next, a unifying sexual relationship. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become echad. This is, a, I'm really terrible actually at saying any kind of um, Hebrew words because I can't do the gadroch, you know. Uh, but this is a word for physical, spiritual, relational oneness. It's one of the most um, beautiful, overarching terms for unity. And this is not just of a physical nature. This is hormonally unified. This is relationally unified. It's experientially unified. And that God has given humanity this beautiful experience to delight us and to unify us in marriage. Again, more on that next week. The next one to be truly known and loved. The man and his wife, they were both naked and were not ashamed. I was a counselor one time and he talked about why divorce is so painful and he said, divorce is so painful because somebody looks at you and they say, I know everything about you and I still don't want you. It's like this ultimate rejection. And uh, when we encounter God, This is why he hates it so much because it's just this terrible lie about his nature and character and it seeps deep inside of the hearts of our children. He hates it because it's a lie and I imagine God puts his arm on his shoulder and says, I love you. You are fully known. Weaknesses and all. I even know all the dumb things you're gonna do and I still love you unconditionally. Finally, innocence. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Adam, you are clean, you are innocent, and this is one of the greatest, most beautiful gifts that God gave to Adam. What could plausibly make Adam forget all of the incredible personal gifts that God made and gave to him 
and go eat of this dumb tree. Does it bother anybody else what Adam sacrificed just for a taste? It drives me nuts. He forgot. He forgot. I guarantee you, if Adam um, was practicing gratitude at every moment, (laughs) whatever happened between this and what happens in chapter three, um, Adam would not have forgotten and made some really dumb decisions. But here's what I love about God. Every practical, tangible, tangible, fundamental cry of his heart and his body is met here. Every one of them. That God withheld nothing from him. Nothing. So Village Church, this takes us to point number two in our notes. All of this and more are yours in Jesus Christ. In fact, it's not just some of these physical things like marriage and sexuality and gender and all that kind of stuff. All of these are arrows that point to a greater, even more beautiful, awesome provision for us in Jesus Christ. And all of this is yours in Jesus Christ. And you have this great privilege, I have this great privilege to take the gifts of God and to use them and therefore be blessed and to use them in the way God intended and therefore have life and flourishing and thriving in my soul and in my body, we also have this ability to use the gifts of God and abuse them and experience pain and death in our lives. And I think for the believer in Jesus Christ, we just start here, right? By the way, there are so many more blessings that God gave in Genesis chapter two, just so you know. Um, Let alone if you just look at your own personal lives and you talk and you write down all of the ways God has overwhelmingly been kind to you and generous to you, and yet so many of us are one or two decisions away from throwing it all out. And I would just say, we need to figure out how to inject something into our rhythms, our daily or weekly rhythms, so that this doesn't happen. I I wanna read to you 1 Corinthians 15, 45. It says this. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, who is Adam, obviously, he became a living being, a nefesh, if you will. And the last Adam, by the way, who is the last Adam? His name is Jesus. Like this is one of those, like, what's the answer? Jesus or the Bible? It's Jesus. There we go. And the last Adam became a life-giving spirit so that in Christ, what Jesus wants to give you, I love how John says it, that I have come to give you life and to give it to you in abundance, to give it to you in overflowing, in an overwhelming fashion, that there are all of these beautiful, tangible gifts that God gives you, and he wants to show you how to use them. There are this deeper level of spiritual gifts that God has given you, redemption and forgiveness and mercy and grace, and God wants to show you how to use them and experience them so that you actually thrive as a human being. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says this, all the promises of God, all of these things that God says that are ours, here's what they are. They find their yes, we get them, we get them allocated to us, they find our yes in Jesus Christ. And that is why through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. That the promises of God, these things that he wants to actually do for you, in you, and through you are only yours in Jesus Christ. That there are so many spiritual and physical and relational and tangible blessings that God has to offer, but they are not ours unless we have faith in Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5 says this, rejoice always. Really? Always? Isn't it weird how the Bible feels so impractical at times and yet it's completely intentional? Like I can't rejoice always, that's ridiculous. What about pain? Pray without ceasing. What about when I don't want to pray? You pray all the more. And then he says, give thanks in all circumstances. What's God's will for your life? That in your pain and in your happiness, you are giving regular thanks to God. Gratitude is flowing out of you because you'll never make it through hardship unless you have a heart of gratitude. Never. 
You will never make it through pain unless you have a heart of gratitude. You will never make it through really difficult situations unless you really, really, really are thankful for what God has done in you. Uh, gratitude is like working out. Nobody likes working out at first when they haven't done it for a while. And the more you do it, the more you're like, this is actually pretty fun and amazing. Most people never get through the first month of the hardship to find the enjoyment in it, right? Can I get an amen on that one? But once you do, here's what you find. Your body starts to change. And in gratitude, your soul starts to change. Your mind starts to change. God has wired us for this, to have a heart of thankfulness. And this is what it does. It just slowly takes the stain on our hearts off and it cleanses us. It's a powerful gift that God has given us. In fact, uh, the book of Romans teaches us just the opposite, that ingratitude and non-thankfulness is a sign of darkness in our hearts. Romans 121, although they knew God, talking about non-Christians, by the way, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, that the lack of giving thanks, as you'll see, is a sign of darkness in us. It says this, they became futile in their minds. When there was a lack of gratitude to God, futility and darkness begin to take over, and their foolish hearts were darkened. There's this spiral that happens when gratitude is not in our lives. So here's the antidote. Do you want to go down this funnel of foolishness? The answer, of course, is no. Nobody wants that in this room. Here's my challenge to you. Figure out in your life, how to inject gratitude at every corner, vertically with God and horizontally with one another. It will literally, absolutely change you. And what I have found is that because of the hurry and the rush of our culture, gratitude is out the window. When you are tasking, you don't have gratitude or we forget to say it. Sometimes we find ourselves thankful. After something is done, we get home and our brains clear out a little bit and we're like, man, I really appreciated what they did. I'm gonna go to bed. Take moments Take every opportunity you can to express gratitude to God and to other people. It will transform them, it will transform you, and it will begin to soften your heart in a profound way. I want to bring our introduction stories full circle. And I want to read about Ralph and Sarah. I want you to imagine a different scenario. I want you to imagine that every day Ralph woke up, turned over, looked at his bride, and said this, God, thank you for giving me the privilege to love, serve, lead, provide, and protect for this woman. Father, give me the strength today to build her up, empower her, and show her Christ today. And then I want you to imagine that every day he puts a practice in his life, and he turns over, he kisses her on the forehead, and he says to her, good morning, I love you. I just thank God for you and for what you do for our family. Can I make you coffee or breakfast? Do you think if that man injected a discipline into his life that his attitude of taking his wife for granted and forgetting the good gift that God has given to her would probably go away? The answer, of course, is yes. The antidote to his forgetfulness was a command from God the whole time. Be grateful. Express it vertically and horizontally. How different would Ralph's life been if he had taken his daily antidote? Imagine if Sarah got out of bed, turned every day to the Lord and said, Father, today I'm still hurting, but I give this burden to you. Thank you for my amazing children. Thank you for your provision. Today, would you give me the strength to show my kids and my coworkers Christ today? How different would Sarah's life have been if she had taken her daily dose and antidote of gratitude? Pamela, imagine if Pamela 
kept a gratitude journal on her phone or in a small notebook. Throughout every day, she would write down every gift and blessing God had provided for her and every answer to prayer. People would notice that she regularly stopped to take down her note, and at the end of every day, she would read aloud the long list of gifts and blessings that God had provided for her as a prayer of thankfulness. She would fall asleep peaceful with God and probably not be tempted to steal a measly $13,000 of a six-figure salary. How different would Pamela's life have been if she took her daily antidote? Isn't it interesting? One decision to take daily gratitude to God and other people can literally change the entire course of your life. And it's almost like God knew this. Uh, In a moment, we're going to shift to communion. And uh, corporate worship, by the way, uh, communion, they have something in common. This This is a time, not just of the word and reflection, but it is a time to celebrate and be grateful for what God has given us in Jesus Christ. Uh, God knows all too well, I know a little bit, the majority of us understand this. Some of your lives are really, really, really hard. And you're, you're struggling to find gratitude toward anything. And that's why bitterness is in you. That's why it's a real uh, a partner in your life that is hurting you and your relationships. But, but here's what happens. God knows this and he calls us back to this place and back to this table for millennia. God's people have been gathering weekly to worship. We've been taking uh, the sacraments, if you will. We've been taking communion, the ordinances, and we, we remember what God has done for us and it's supposed to do something for you. Um, it's not, it doesn't magically change you, but it's supposed to well up gratitude because despite all that isn't working in your life, much of which, by the way, is from our own decisions, despite all that's working, this works. Jesus Christ's blood cleanses us. He has given us what he gave Adam, but he's given it to us even deeper. Innocence, cleanliness, freedom from our sin, freedom from the guilt of our sin. And so we come to this communion table, we come to this service, and our prayer is that we would be able to celebrate. Why do we even sing a lot of our songs upbeat? Because even if your life stinks, you can thank God. Because even if life is hard, we can give him glory. We can give him gratitude. We can give him thanks. And you know what it does? It's an antidote. And so every time we take communion, this is like a spiritual antidote where you come before God and and sometimes we confess our sins. Sometimes our prayers are just, God, I can't even believe that you give me access to yourself. Like Adam, you give me yourself. You are my father. You have loved me. Like uh, you think about any of the good gifts that God gave to Adam and he's given to you in Christ. And this becomes this opportunity of gratitude despite our sin. And so here's what I wanna, I wanna do. I want us to be able to come to the communion table and we're gonna sing a song of worship. We're gonna, we're gonna celebrate what God has done for us. And here's my prayer for you. My prayer for you is that not only would you look at the physical blessings of your life, all of the provisions he's met for you, would you even go deeper and look at the spiritual blessings he has given to you and may your worship be a response of thankfulness and gratitude. May this be an antidote. May today maybe be the first non-bitter day you have. May today maybe it's gonna be the first day where you don't wag your finger at God and say, if you were good, you would have done this in my life. Maybe today is the day you begin writing down your thankf- the things you were thankful for. Maybe today God is gonna give you like a next step so that you can actually begin to heal and repair the discontent and the bitterness in your marriage or in your relationships or in your church or whatever it is.